Welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Later on in the podcast is an interview with Kirsty Gibson, who is the co-manager of the Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust. And then at the end of the podcast is our Fund Spotlight feature, in which one of Interactive Investor's fund analyst team runs through one of Interactive Investor's rated funds. But before all that, me and Tom Bailey, the ETFs editor at Interactive Investor, are going to chat through a couple of news items that are related to funds and investment trusts. Let's start off with inflation. We've spoke on previous podcasts about the rising levels of inflation and whether it will prove to be temporary or more sustained. But it seems for the next year or so that both savers and investors need to brace themselves for higher levels of inflation than they've been used to for some time following comments that were made last week by Chancellor Rishi Sunak as part of the autumn budget. Yeah, so the Chancellor said that inflation is um, expected to peak at 4.4% next year. Um, he could put that down to international stuff, so supply chains and also energy prices. But obviously, this is higher than the Bank of England's target of uh, 2%. So this raises questions about the future potential of rate rises. And of course, uh, you know that, that raises all sorts of risks. Um, the premature rate rises could prove to be a policy mistake, choking off the UK's kind of nascent economic recovery. For now, growth uh, is still expected to be strong. So the latest OBR estimates um, for, for growth this year uh, rose from 4% to 6.5%. Um, however, growth expectations for next year have actually been downgraded. Uh, last uh, March, they were at 7% and now they're at 6%. Um, so obviously, what, what choice the bank will take and the route will take remains to be seen. But obviously, inflation and then the uh, add-on issue of rate rises is going to remain a major theme for all investors to consider about their portfolios. Rising levels of inflation is, of course, challenging for both equity and bond markets. In terms of equities, um, inflation is particularly bad for companies that do not possess pricing power, those companies that are price takers rather than price makers. While for the bond market, inflation erodes the value of the income that bonds pay. And as with equities, some types of bonds are much more resilient than others in the face of rising prices. For example, short-duration bonds. These are bonds that have a short lifespan of a couple of years. These types of bonds are less sensitive to interest rates compared to long duration bonds, which have a lifespan of, say, 20 to 30 years. In terms of ideas on how to build some inflation protection into a portfolio, some investment trusts explicitly target inflation as a benchmark for their performance, including capital gearing, which is one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 choices, Capital Gearing's dual objectives are to preserve shareholders' real wealth and to achieve an absolute total return. Uh, It uses the Retail Prices Index inflation measure as the minimum target to beat over the medium to long term. And the trust has for a couple of years now been preparing for a sustained period of higher inflation. It has around 30% of its money in inflation-linked bonds, which will, of course, benefit from increases in rises in inflation. Other investment trusts that aim to um, grow their dividends at a faster rate of inflation include uh, bankers and the Scottish American Investment Company. Both these trusts are dividend heroes, um, having raised their payouts every year for 54 and 47 years, respectively. And in addition, real assets such as infrastructure, property and gold have also historically acted as impressive long-term hedges against inflation. Although bear in mind that with gold, that it can be uh, very volatile over the short term. 
But ultimately, the you know a sensible way to try and beat inflation over the long term is to adopt a balanced approach. And this involves holding both growth assets, such as equities, which have the potential to outperform inflation, alongside some bonds and alternatives to give diversification, which avoids taking on too much equity risk. In terms of exchange traded funds, Tom, what would you pick out as being potential options as inflation hedges? Well, so uh, you, you mentioned when it comes to equities, one of, one of the things for, for a company is, is its pricing power. Um, obviously, companies that can raise prices in line with or above general price rises, i.e. inflation, without losing customers or market share, are potentially well positioned. So generally, a company with strong pricing power. Um, and these kind of companies often have what we call economic moats. This is kind of the famous phrase from Warren Buffett, really. But basically, it means a company that has a strong competitive advantage that stops rivals eating into their, their market share. So you can, you can raise price rises and customers leave, as, as I said. So for this, uh, there, there are two ETFs that, that kind of give exposure to these sort of companies. So they both come from Vanek Vectors, um, the big ETF issuer. So there's Vanek Vectors Morningstar US Wide Moat ETF, and its ticker, unsurprisingly, is MOAT, Moat. And then there's Vanek Vectors Morningstar Global Wide Moat ETF, its ticker being GOAT, GOAT. So the, these ETFs you know, track the index of roughly 40 to 60 companies deemed to have wide moats as strong competitive advantages and therefore pricing power. So these could be a kind of a, a nice addition to a portfolio to protect against inflation. The companies in it should be able to increase their their, their prices in line with, with with the general increase in price rises in terms of inputs and defend their their their, um, their margins, their, their, their revenue, um, but without obviously the risk of, of being undercut by rivals and losing market share. So um, obviously not, you know, you wouldn't want this being a part of all your portfolio, but it might be a nice thing to look at for, for a small inflation hedge in, 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 a, in a broader portfolio. We're now going to move next on to uh, UK dividends. According to the latest uh, UK Dividend Monitor report from Link Group, the dividend recovery from the pandemic is uh, surprising on the upside. Tom, could you run through the figures that were released last week? Yeah, sure. So payments from companies in the third quarter of the year stood at almost £40 billion on a headline basis. So this represented a 89.2% rise compared to the same period in 2020. Well, of course, that's base effects, dividend payments collapsing last year due to the pandemic. But still, it does show strong signs of recovery. So there's plenty of uh, good news there for uh, income-seeking investors, but it's not all good news. As when you drill down into the sectors, the uh, the recovery does look fairly uneven. Mining companies have been leading the recovery in dividends, but some of the consumer discretionary names have been holding back, returning to paying dividends at their previous pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth quoting Link on this um, directly. So they said, those in the consumer de- discretionary group saw a wide divergence between companies restoring dividends and those still unable to pay. For example, most travel and hospitality companies paid nothing, uh, as you might expect, while some general retailers and industrials bounced back and others stayed on the sidelines. So you're seeing quite a divergence in, in the fortunes of different companies, even within the same broad sector categories. And finally, we're going to briefly cover the new type of fund structure that the regulator has been finalising. It's called the Long-Term Assets Fund. Under the proposed new structure, such funds will have uh, 90-day redemption notice periods. This means that an investor would have to wait uh, three months for their money back if they were to sell. Um, Such a structure would suit illiquid assets, such as uh, property and unlisted shares in the open-ended fund structure. And to me, the Long-Term Assets Fund seems to offer investors some sort of halfway house between open-ended funds in their current form and an investment trust. 
as these this new fund structure is seeking to limit daily withdrawals, but it's not putting a limit on how much can be invested on a daily basis. This new fund structure, though, well, well, definitely uh, an interesting idea. It's, it's still not going to be. It's not aimed at retail investors right now, at least. That's right. Um, at this stage, the regulator has said that it plans to consult on wider retail distribution um, at, at a later stage. But for now, the new fund structure is being intended for pension funds or sophisticated or wealthy uh, private investors. I, personally, I can't get my head around why wealthy private investors were mentioned by the regulators having some sort of special treatment over other retail investors. And my, my personal view is that you either let all retail investors uh, you know, buy this new fund structure or don't make it available to anyone. Um, but ultimately, um, if these funds cannot be bought by retail investors, then this will surely benefit investment trusts, which in my view are a much better structure for illiquid assets than open-ended funds. It's been proven time and time again. For our fund manager interview, I'm joined by Kirsty Gibson, co-manager of the Bailey Giffords US Growth Trust. So Kirsty, the philosophy underpinning the trust is built around the search for the few outstanding businesses. So how many outstanding businesses would you say there are and how do you find them? So um, as you mentioned, we're looking for what we would we would call exceptional growth companies. And our philosophy is based on a foundational belief in the asymmetry of long-term stock market returns. It's not about how often you are right, but how much you can make for clients when you are. And the consequence of this is that we don't think in certainties, we think in probabilities. So consequently, I can't say with any certainty how many outstanding businesses there are out there. But what I can say is that one of the things that makes being a U.S. growth investor right now particularly exciting is that we believe that innovation is speeding up and it is spreading out and that we're closer to the beginning than we are to the end. The digital transformation that has up until recently been confined to the likes of e-commerce and advertising is really starting to take hold in more complex areas like insurance and energy and transportation, to name a few. And with many exciting businesses across industries in both public and private markets, we are now constantly raising the bar as to what we consider to be an outstanding business. And I think this competition for capital is a great position to be in, as I believe it pushes us to keep getting better as investors. So to to answer the second part of your question with regard to how we go about finding those businesses. So we believe that allowing people to follow their individual enthusiasms will likely generate the best investment ideas. Thus, we are all generalists, but we do have areas of interest and enthusiasm that we pursue. However, we do believe that these exceptional growth businesses share some common characteristics. They address vast market opportunities and they have headroom to grow unimpeded for long periods of time, even after periods of supernormal growth. Secondly, these businesses have strong competitive advantages, which often get stronger as they scale, owing to the inherent flywheels within their business models. And thirdly, they have distinctive cultures. They're run for the long term, often by founders who have skin in the game and who have an attachment to the company rather than the share price. And this enables them to unlock new growth opportunities, some of which we can't even imagine when we first invest. I think so connected to that, 
it might sound obvious, but we believe that in order to generate insight, you cannot use the same sources of information as everybody else. Therefore, our use of things like cell-side research is fairly limited. We use academics to harness their far greater expertise on complex new topics. We employ inquisitive researchers to do deep dives on topics we are interested in. We engage with management teams and our reputation as a long-term stable shareholder has enabled us excellent access to public and private companies, even those we don't actually own. And when we're not in a global pandemic, we often go on trips, you know, extended trips to the US and we learn from both private and public companies. And we're increasingly growing our presence in private markets to learn from new and exciting businesses about emerging areas. So for us, the writing of a report is not the end of our research. You know, it's an, it's an ongoing process and there's always something to learn. And in common with other Bailey Gifford funds and investment trusts, there's a big focus on disruptive businesses that are making clever use of technology. Could you name a couple of companies that the trust has owned ahead of other investors hearing about them? Absolutely. So I think the two that spring to mind are, for me, are Zoom and Peloton. So we bought Zoom in October 2019, and we had a, um, a hypothesis that this is a company with a user experience that stood out from the crowd. And it's this focus on the user experience that was coinciding with a powerful movement happening in the enterprise market. And that was that employees were having more and more influence on IT purchasing decisions. And we believe the fact that Zoom just worked removed many of the impediments to historic adoption of video conferencing and also up, uh, opened up many new use cases. I can honestly say we certainly didn't see a global pandemic on the horizon, but those are sort of some of the reasons why, why we thought Zoom was, was very interesting. And the other company is Peloton. So that's the at-home fitness subscription company. And the trust first bought Peloton in October 2018, participating in their private Series F round. Um, the high level of user engagement, the high levels of net promoter score and renewal rates suggested to us that Peloton was building a unique business in this area with a strong foundation of customer loyalty. And we felt this boded well for its future growth ambitions and expansion um, into new fitness products in the future. And when you get it right and the you know share price rises quickly over a short time period, how do you assess whether to take profits or do you instead run your winners? I can see that Tesla's in the top 10 holdings. Has that been reduced in line with other Bailey Gifford funds and investment trusts? So we always come back to philosophy and process. Um, we periodically revisit the potential upside case for our holdings. For our listed holdings, our upside hurdle is at least um, 2.5 times return over five years at a probability of greater than 20%, which is the, the base rate for any company picked at random. And for private companies, our hurdle is higher given the less liquid nature of those investments. So we're looking for a five times return over five years with a greater than 5% probability. Thus, even after periods of super normal growth, we may conclude to continue to hold these businesses if we can outline a case where we have conviction in from the current starting point. So I think a consequence of this um, being long term for us is not about looking at the base rate for a given company. It's about being brave. And what I mean by that is it's daring to hypothesize about what could go right for a company. It's being willing to run our winners and committing to own them in significant size if we can still articulate a 
long-run investment case hypothesis for that business and holding on during the inevitable periods of volatility and those humbling periods of underperformance. And yes, we, we did reduce our holding in Tesla. We revisited the upside case on a number of occasions in 2020 for that business. And we concluded to reduce given a far greater emphasis needed to be placed on solar and storage. And although these are really potentially very exciting parts of the business, they are still far earlier stage. And as a consequence, we decided that we wanted to own Tesla in size, but we didn't want it to be the largest holding in the trust. You mentioned earlier that um, Zoom and Peloton are two examples of companies that, um, that at the time were being overlooked by other investors and therefore served um, the trust very well um, for buying um, a couple of years ago. I mean, looking ahead, could you name a couple of examples of companies that you own that you think are currently under the radar and have the potential to substantially grow their market share in the sector or industry that they operate in? Absolutely. Um, I'd probably highlight a couple of our private names. So one would be Brex. So Brex is building a modern alternative to business banking. So traditional banks are generally quite risk averse and slow to meet the needs of smaller, faster growing businesses. Brex initially began by providing credit cards to startups, an area that was acutely underserved. And it's since expanded into current accounts and cash management. And there's an opportunity in the long run for them to provide every banking service a business needs in an integrated and far cheaper way. They've also illustrated a strong alignment with their customer base. And I think this positions them very well to disrupt a truly enormous market. Um, The second company I'd highlight is a company called Solugens. This is a relatively new purchase for the trust. It's, It's a business that's bringing together the best of synthetic biology with the best of traditional chemical production to create chemicals with far better yields, lower costs and lower environmental footprints. Scaling has always been a complex challenge in the world of synthetic biology, but Solugen has a promising approach, a modular bioforge that means chemicals can be made closer to the end customer, thus creating greater flexibility and really helping to reduce costs. And in terms of performance, the trust has notably outperformed other US trusts um, over three years. Over one year, though, the trust is um, slightly below the sector average, although it's worth pointing out that there's only six trusts in the sector. Has that been down to value shares having some good spells of performance over the past year? And also, what's your view on the argument that's made by those value-focused fund managers that following a decade of dominance for growth stocks, that valuations for growth stocks are looking rich and potentially unsustainable going forward? Um, I think I'd highlight a, a few points here that maybe cover off those questions. So I think we're investing in innovation and entrepreneurship, and they are ultimately both really hard. And the consequence of that is that we don't expect perfection. There will be bumps in the road in terms of share prices and fundamentals. And because when you are looking to invest in long term structural change, that is the reality of investing that way. Volatility is the norm. It's not the exception. But the long run opportunities for these businesses remain very exciting. And we are very excited about the companies that we own in our portfolio right now. The second point I'd make is that I believe the discussion of growth versus value is a bit of a red herring. Ultimately, no investor looks to buy an overvalued stock. The biggest difference tends to be the time period over which you consider an investment. 
as a long-term investor, a lot can happen in a five to 10 year period. Revenues can compound, management can unlock new growth opportunities or um, deploy capital very effectively. Companies can go from being loss-making to profit-making, and this makes short-term multiples largely irrelevant. I think the final point I'd make is that I don't believe in the concept of mean reversion. It suggests that companies stand still and return to some level of normality, but normal is just not a static concept. Companies don't operate in a vacuum, they evolve and they impact each other. And in the current world of innovation, they have to evolve simply to survive. The question is, are current market valuations sustainable? For some, maybe, for others, maybe not. But can some businesses evolve and innovate and grow into their short-term valuations? I believe that they can. But I don't believe my time is best spent waiting for the return of some historical period. I believe my time is better spent thinking about those companies who have the potential to transform and innovate on a five to 10 year view. And finally, a question that we ask all the guests on the podcast Do you personally invest in the Bailey Giffords US Growth Trust? Uh, Yes, I do. And it's enough, enough money that it matters to me. Kirsty, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Kyle. I'm now joined by Liberty Godfrey, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor for our Fund Spotlight feature. So Liberty, what have you chosen for this episode? So I've chosen Foresight Global Real Infrastructure Fund, which aims to achieve an annual return in excess of the UK Consumer Price Index plus 3% over any five-year period. The fund invests in publicly traded shares of companies that own or operate real infrastructure or renewable energy assets anywhere in the world. And they only invest in companies that they believe deliver a net social or environmental benefit and meet the principles of the United Nations Global Compact, which are a set of guidelines for investing ethically. It was launched in June 2019 and has grown to a size of just under £600 million. And the fund is managed by the highly experienced Nick Scullion and co-managed by Mark Brennan and Eric Bright, as well as further support from the 10-strong investment team for the fund and 250-strong wider team at Foresight who are, ba- who are based across the globe. And how does the management team invest and could you run through the ethical process? Yeah, so there are three main elements to the process. So firstly, they look at certain fundamentals, including the strength of how the business operates and the strength of its cash flow. Secondly, there's ongoing active engagement, and this includes meeting with the management team and assessing its long-term strategy to ensure it continues to align with the fund's investment objective. And thirdly, sustainability is a core part of the investment process. All holdings are assessed to ensure they are delivering a net environmental or social benefit and are upholding their responsibilities to the planet and people within areas such as human rights, labour, the environment and anti-corruption. And what areas is the fund currently favouring and could you give some stock examples? Yeah, so the fund currently invests in 31 companies. Um, So the concentrated portfolio results in companies having a meaningful impact on performance. Uh, And the fund has private equity and private capital approach with around two thirds of their assets within some type of investment vehicle, including investment trusts and REITs. The fund is highly exposed to North America, 
with over half the portfolio in the US and Canada. And other top exposures include the UK, New Zealand, Norway and Spain. Just under half the portfolio is invested into renewables, including energy generation and storage, as well as having some exposure to core and traditional infrastructure and social infrastructure, such as hospitals, schools and bridges. Top holdings within the fund include Easterly Government Properties, which is a US real estate investment trust, Infratril, a New Zealand-based infrastructure investment company, and Scartec, a Norwegian company specialising in renewable energy systems. And finally, how does the fund stand out from the crowd? So Foresight Global Real Infrastructure Fund features on the ACE40 as a specialist core option. It also sits within the ACE Embraces category as it only invests in companies that the team believe deliver a net social or environmental benefit. It's managed by highly experienced managers and team and the fund offers a unique specialist exposure to real infrastructure assets and renewable energy, giving investors a way to gain exposure to support COP26 initiatives. The fund has delivered strong performance since launch and typically has low correlation to equities, so is a good diversifier for investors to consider. Thanks, Liberty. And that's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do spread the word to anyone you know of who invests in funds and investment trusts that will hopefully find the podcast interesting and useful. And as ever, there's plenty more investment ideas on the Interactive Investor website, ii.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>